Christ Presbyterian Church is a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Visit us for morning or evening worship in Mobile, Alabama, or on the web at cpcmobile.com. Turn to Acts chapter 4. We'll uh, begin reading in verse 32 and go down to 5 verse 11. Acts 4.32 to 5.11. This is God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word for us this morning in the book of Acts. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these things, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After about an hour, or after about an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had, what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said, How is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the reading of God's word for this morning. Let us look to him in prayer. Holy God of Israel, Holy Messiah, who is the head of your church, King of kings, majestic, holy and wise and righteous and sinless in all your ways, Lord, give us the grace, give us open hearts to hear your word this morning. Send your spirit to transform us, to cleanse us, to wash us by your grace, to warn us, 
by your word and to repent of our sins. Lord, we are unworthy. We ask that you would work mightily within us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You know, I, uh, I can't tell. This might be the most anti-missions sermon or the most missions Sunday sermon ever. I, I can't really tell here. Um, I haven't figured it out just yet. <laughs> Our topic this morning is going to be the fear of the Lord. You know, there's a tendency within the church that when things are going well, that we all just get loose in our care of the things of God. And the church in Acts 4 and 5, though being persecuted, yet tens of thousands have come to saving faith in Christ. The kingdom of Christ is growing exponentially over months, and God's people oftentimes then use times of plenty to neglect their hearts. For instance, when you're relaxing, you're not as careful about your sin and obedience, right? When you're on vacation, oftentimes Christian things become optional, right? Seem like we just take a break. When you're relaxing by yourselves at home, it's amazing how much sin can just flow out of your flesh, of the, the, of the heart, and how much it impacts our homes and our relationships. The reality is that we stop guarding our hearts. We stop being watchful over our souls. It's almost like, well, again, we just take vacation from the truth, from holiness, from the permanent change of soul that the, that the Lord, that the high Lord of the universe, by the Holy Spirit, has worked within us. And this morning, the Lord just says very, very clearly, you may not. Yeah, pause for dramatic effect. Listen to it. You may not. Your comforts in this life are not as important to me, God, as my holiness. How do we even get here to talk, to talk about this in the book of Acts? Jesus ascended on high in Acts chapter 1. He has established his church and he has poured out the Holy Spirit upon her in Acts chapter 2. It's growing. They've been empowered. They've been gifted with the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they've been calling the, the ethnic Jews primarily to repent of its rejection of Christ and to believe on the gospel. That's what Acts chapter 3 has been about. And the Jewish high court is now persecuting them, trying to get them to stop Acts 4. But they will not. They may only do what Christ has told them to do, and they pray for greater boldness to do it. And the Lord Jesus Christ has given them that boldness and given them a greater grace in order to do these things, to preach the gospel, and he has blessed it with greater church unity until now. So our main point this morning is going to be, very frankly, 
that Christ cares more in worship about his glory than your comforts. He cares more about his glory than your comforts, than what you want. And we're going to look at this under two headings, a good example and a bad example, because one aspect of kingdom and church living is a thankful willingness to sacrifice for each other, again, as a reflection of the fact that Christ has sacrificed so much to atone for our sins. And therefore, we are to take care of each other's needs. Jesus has sacrificed for us, after all, and therefore we are to commit ourselves to sacrificing those things beyond our basic needs for the good and growth of each other. That kind of self-sacrifice is uncomfortable. And let me tell you, the, the Western American church doesn't like anything within Christianity that is uncomfortable. We love comfort. We're committing then to a level of discomfort, each for, basically each, for our Christ-likeness. And so we start, and we see here in Barnabas a good example of discomfort, of self-sacrifice. And we see this in verses 43, uh, 32 through 37 in chapter 4. Now, again, some of this material we hit last week as we were looking at what happened at the end of Acts chapter 4. I'm not going to go over it again here. But for now, we're going to just focus on Barnabas. So Acts 4 and 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. This means that because they were committed to Christ, they were committed to the bride of Christ. I don't, the idea that you can love Jesus but hate his wife is completely foreign to biblical Christianity. Lone Ranger Christianity is not merely unbiblical. It is an error detrimental to salvation. It is a heresy. You and Jesus Christianity is completely foreign. We share Christ's agenda. We share the theology that he teaches us, the same sacraments and each other's needs. And as the church grows in number, there should be in time more and more people sacrificing for one another. That's the whole point here. So that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had all things in common. Now, some Christians and some cults have used this text to justify the confiscation of people's resources towards the whole. Don't think that doesn't happen today. Some of you have this testimony. <laughs> okay? It happens. Or some have used this idea to manipulate people into giving everything to the church so that the church can make everyone's lives equal. You see that in a more of a of a liberal, radical, theological context. So contrary, though, to, the, to some of those uh, liberal theological ideas, the church and the good biblical theology do not teach communism. We don't. Never will, never have. The church doesn't have the right to take your stuff. Like... For instance, how much you make according to your tax returns. You are aware, please be aware, that there are churches that require its members to submit their tax returns so that the church knows how much they should tithe. Verse 33. But with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so when the church functions, 
in a self-sacrificial, taking care, taking care of each other's needs way, it honors God as a little city of Jerusalem living to the glory of its king. And some are preaching and some are bringing people in. Others are ready to receive and take care of new people. And we all function within this new little city. So that, verse 34, there was not a, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as had need. So then your tithes and your offerings beyond the tithe are collected to create and or support other ministries, in fact, like the Women's Resource Center. Okay? And they are distributed to those in the congregation who are in need. That is a right and good understanding of tithes and offerings. And according to 1 Corinthians, the tithes and the offerings then were brought into the church on the first day of the week, which was when the church worshipped. And this is a practice that we still hold to today. Even at this time, as we show you in our bulletin, the church was worshipping not on the Jewish Sabbath, so Friday night going into Saturday night, but on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day Jesus was resurrected, Saturday night going into Sunday night. And on the Lord's Day, then, we bring in our tithes and our offerings. But then Luke sets up one man as a good example of coming and giving as an act within worship. Thus, Joseph, verse 36, that's his Jewish name, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, that should trigger, you know, like a ding, all right? Barnabas becomes a, a very, very important person within the life of the early church. This is the Barnabas who'd travel with Saul, He'd be an evangelist and a central figure in the young church. That means that within the first few months of the church's young life, Barnabas was converted to Christ by the gospel. Whether at Pentecost or any of these other preaching events, Barnabas heard. He came to saving faith, fled to Jesus for righteousness, and was looking to Jesus' death in faith, and was born again by the Holy Spirit. And now he's living up to his name, which means son of encouragement. But we also have a snapshot of his former life because he was a Levite and a native of Cyprus. That means that Barnabas was of the priestly order. And some of the Levitical priests themselves came to saving faith in Jesus, and Barnabas, so thankful for what Christ had done for him, heard of an opportunity to give some of what he had, some of the extra stuff that he had, to bless others, that he, verse 37, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, verse 37 gives us a good indication of what was said earlier about having all things in common. The point is, here is not to sell all that you have and to give it to the church. Please, don't be fooled by these TV and YouTube charlatans. Please. Like, in fact, if, if, I, if I hear at all of you um, giving money to f fund someone's next airplane or... Uh, or, or uh, want to make him uh, even richer than he already is, or if you're going to get defrauded by a two-by-two-inch anointing, red anointing oil cloth for a hundred bucks, I'm going to come and yell at you in grace and mercy, okay? Please don't. Please. 
Further, the idea here is not that we sell everything that we own to become the very poor that we're supporting, uh, that, that, uh, uh, that are then supported by what was given. That, that does not make sense. Also, this text is not a justification for traveling Franciscan friars in the Middle Ages who sinfully put their wives and kids in convents, gave their money to the church, and in poverty begged as they preached the gospel. That is not an example that we think you should follow. But what Barnabas does here is he sells off something he doesn't need and doesn't use. This is not his tithe. This is an offering beyond the tithe. He has some extra resources. He sees needs. And he gives it to the church to be distributed to the Christians in need. He reasons, how is this not given to me to further the kingdom? That's basically his thought process here. Not to supply, our people, not to supply people's desires, okay? But to take care of basic needs. Food, clothing, shelter, work. Not to... Uh, undo poor decision-making, but to supply needs. And the same question comes before us. We live, despite what you think, we live in the most affluent culture the world has ever seen. Our poor are much richer than the rest of the world's poor. And I think there's a pretty broad swath, therefore, of application for this. I've seen churches close and sell their buildings and land and give it to a presbytery or give it to another church to fund the planting of another church. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I've seen saints die, and instead of giving everything to their kids, they certainly set apart um, more than enough for their children and give the rest of it with specific instructions to the distribution of the church so that redemption and reconciliation and the gospel message can continue to move forward. And I find myself asking myself, and you should be asking yourselves the same question, what will, let's say, retirement look like? I don't have any plans to retire. Am I hoping and wishing to have these resources given to me for a life of comfort and ease? Or, in my retirement, will I still open my home Still give time, still give resources, still feed, still clothe, still pour myself out. Because this isn't just a congregation question, this is a Christian question. Will I buy a house to live beyond my means, or will, I, will, we, or will we sacrifice so that ministry can continue? This text is not striking at the problems of getting paid well. This text is, is getting at what mindset do you have with the things that you have? Do I think that my life is my own? Or do I believe it's the Lord's? Do I act as though I'm building my own kingdom or living in his? Is not all that I have given to me by the, by the providence and by the grace and kindness of God? And who then am I? To say, thank you, Lord, for graciously giving it to me. You may not call upon me to give it to someone else. How am I going to be a good steward with what I have? By hoarding it? Or by being wise and generous as God presents opportunities for Christians? How can we, who have received so much from Christ, earning it by no merit of our own, then look upon the, the same plight of other sinners in the exact same place that we used to be 
without hope save in Christ alone and not see ourselves and not have a merciful, generous heart and not see that I too get to be an instrument of the Lord today and not want to see his kingdom expand. So sure, you got property. Sure, we own things. But none of us have what we have through ourselves. It was given to you by a gracious and heavenly father. It has been, he has been, if he has been profusely gracious to us, how can we not get creative and be gracious towards each other? So then, this is not about uh, give the church your resources because they are wiser than you. Trust me, the church is not always wiser than you. That's nonsense. This is about your mentality of thankfulness to God for what you have in Christ and how the gospel motivates us to be generous. Barnabas sees this in himself, and he is willing to grow in a thankful discomfort for the sake of Christ. And so maybe you're sitting here, yeah, Josh, I can't do that. I don't make enough money. I'm a student. We're a young family. We're a big family. I'm retired. I'm a widow. Nonsense. The economy isn't doing well. Okay. This is not about place in life. This is about your mentality. You give and offer according to the means that you have. But Jesus came to this world and was so generous towards you that he lived for your righteousness and he died for your sins and was resurrected to give you new life so that, according to the law of God, you be treated as though you've all as though you've always been thankful to God for your salvation, and you have been always been generous towards those around you. Why? So that what Paul says in command form regarding offerings and not tithes here, but offerings in Second Corinthians nine is also true of us. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as, has been de- as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That means that he has been so generous to you, so that you may be generous to others. That is not what your flesh wants. But he, in motivating and empowering you, opposite of your sinful, hoarding, self-loving flesh, is calling you in Christ to do just that. That is Barnabas' good example and our worthy emulation of him in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. But that's not the end of this text. Because then we have the second part, the example of a dishonest discomfort in Ananias and Sapphira. Look at how Luke even presents this contrast. He immediately says, but, that is, he presents a contrast. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, so they're both part of this whole scenario, because they too sold a piece of property. Okay, well, seemingly generous. Verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, that is, with a counseled decision between the two of them, this is a head of household who appears to do something who appears to do something genuinely good, but doesn't. So men, is this how you're going to use your headship? 
that is contrary to the advance of the gospel? Do you use your headship in your homes to institute rebellion and sin or self-sacrifice and godliness? Ananias sins against the Lord, against the church, against his own role as head of household. And we have to ask the question, gentlemen, let's go further. Do you even then include, uh, uh, you even include uh, for those whom you're responsible in your rebellion against God? Because Ananias sinfully includes his wife in this corrupt act which violates his headship now twofold. It's bad enough that he did it. It's even worse that he includes his wife now. Inclusion of his wife in a big decision isn't the sin. Husbands ought to seek the counsel of their wives, as even as we learned yesterday from our queens. But the inclusion of her in the sin is sin. We don't have the right to, to tempt our spouses to sin, And yet, men, are you manipulating your wives to then get them to go along with your sin wherever you find it? Are you presenting the, let's, let's, I want to be clear about what this is. Because what we're doing is we're taking sin, which is gross and odious, and we're rewrapping it and presenting it to our spouses as though it's beautiful. It is a feces of sin sandwich pre-presented as steak and potatoes. Okay? That is what this is. Yes. Good. I like the fact that some of you went, good. And are you trying then to convince your wives to eat it with you? So Ananias sins against Sapphira, even if she goes along with it, and she does go along with it. She uses her submission to her husband sinfully as well then giving corrupt counsel and going along with it. So what did they decide to do? Wives, I'd ask, are you allowing sin in your homes by listening to your husband's sinful plan over God's inerrant word? You're not allowed to. We do not have the right to sin against God. Our husbands don't have the right to enforce sin in our homes. We don't have the right to go along with it. You don't have the right to listen to your husband's leadership when it's contrary to God's revealed word and Christ's agenda, nor prefer your own. It doesn't matter if any human will ever catch you. God sees you, and he will hold you accountable. So, the, wait, 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 what's the problem here? Ananias has presented the money to the church as though he sold it for the good of the kingdom, but then he kept some back for himself, some of the proceeds. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, well, well, that's a big deal. He gave a good chunk to Jesus' church for distribution. The church should be happy with Ananias' generosity. What's the problem? Yeah, because, you know, you've never known God to ever care about the motive of people's obedience, right? He doesn't look on the heart, ever. Oh, wait a second, we have one commandment in ten, regarding what goes on in the heart. That is, thou shalt not covet. We we reason that God doesn't mind being lied to to his face. He doesn't care about the, the parts of public worship that he's enacted, like tithes and offerings. Let's just ignore the death of Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament. God's just tickled to death that you showed up anyways. Is that is that how we approach him? 
That he doesn't really care how you treat his glory, how you treat his worship, how you treat his people, how you treat the advance of the kingdom of Christ. Right? Wrong. In every action, there are three parts. There's the motive for the action, there's the obedience of the action itself, and then there's the goal of the action. In Barnabas's action, his motive, goal, and actions were all holy. Not sinless, but right. But in Ananias and Sapphira's action, the motive is selfish, the action is compromised, and the goal is not to the glory of the Lord. It is a feces sandwich presented to God and his church as steak and potatoes. And the idea is that God should accept it. You wouldn't. So he sold it and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, again, we need to go a little bit further into what's going on here because there's a twofold problem. There is not merely the problem of his lie. Ananias is wrong in his first holding the money back for himself and then second, lying about it. And thirdly, clearly the goal, the goal not being the glory of the Lord. How many times have you lied before the Lord about your sins and about your offerings? Ooh, let's just let that sit. How many times have you lied to yourself, to God, to the church, about what you can and cannot give? Because it appears that the Holy Spirit now then gives Peter some kind of knowledge that tells him what's happening here. Otherwise, I just don't see how he could normally, under natural conditions, know. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias. <laughs> now, there's a, a problem with, um, there is a problem with, with Ananias that explains why he would take this conclusion. Why has Satan filled your heart? Now, this is not a state of the soul that is possible for actual Christians. 1 Corinthians clearly tells us the Holy Spirit in Belial, that is Satan, cannot take up residence in the same soul. Christians, in whom is the Holy Spirit, cannot then be demon-possessed. So the fact that Satan has filled your heart to hold back funds and lie means that Ananias is no Christian at all. Might then that also be true of some of us? Look, this text throws just fastballs right across the plate, and you ain't going to do anything about them. That's all that is here, okay? He's lying about his interest in Christ and the state of his soul. He's a false convert, and it's not that Satan literally abides in him, but that his heart is filled with a satanic agenda, an agenda that is self-seeking, self-loving, and intentionally detrimental to the kingdom of Christ. Have you ever then considered that your actions also then might be anti-Christ, contrary to the expansion of his kingdom? In fact, Ananias and Judas do almost exactly the same thing. He's walking as an enemy of the cross while pretending in front of the apostles, the church, and God that he is a friend of God's redemptive work. So he comes to the apostles to present this offering. He's coming into the presence of God. Tithes and offerings, ever since the Mosaic Covenant, have always been brought into gathered worship. So he came to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself parts of the proceeds of the land. Now, notice something. The text just equated God with the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, the Holy Spirit is 100% God. But also, you cannot lie to an object that is not a person. You cannot lie, let's say, to a rock. You can lie about the rock that you threw through the window in accident. But you cannot lie to a rock. You lie only to persons. And therefore, not only is the Holy Spirit God, he is a person. He is a he. He is not an it. He is not a that. He is a he. He is not a power. And he is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a he, and he is God. And he abides permanently with the church and empowers it, and therefore Ananias is presenting himself before God, before the church, as someone who is sacrificing for the kingdom of Christ, but he is not. He's lying. And we all have to ask the question, are you lying too? He's deceiving everyone, including himself. Are you lying to God about your tithes and offerings as well? Have you considered yourself through an unbiblical argument that you don't need to or will do it somehow later? Do you present yourself as though you have uh, that you do have much or that you do not have much but do? Or do you present yourself as giving much but don't? Do you hold back part of your tithes and offerings for yourself? Lying to yourself after all, God, God will understand. This is no less for elders and pastors. So please, I am preaching to myself. Yes, I tithe. We tithe. The general fund of the church is not my personal bank account. Play, okay? Please understand. We are supposed to tithe and, off and offer offerings beyond the tithe. And I'll ask officers of this church, are you? Do you? Are you presenting yourselves as for the advancement of the gospel? But clearly you're not. If you are an officer of this church and are not tithing and giving offerings as you ought, at best it's a hypocritical action, at worst you're a hypocrite. There are all sorts of ways that we can hide money after all. We can bury our consciences in all sorts of things and tell ourselves, God's just going to understand. But did God understand? As you read through Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, did you understand with Nadab and Abihu? Was he understanding then? When he struck them dead for offering wrong incense and strange fire in his worship, did he understand when he rejected Saul's kingship for taking Samuel's place as the priest for a worship, a worship offering? Did he understand when he gave uh, King Hezekiah immediately a snowy white leprosy for wrongly assuming to himself the responsibilities of a priest? Was he understanding when, he, when some of the Corinthians got sick or died, not just for dividing the church out of their pride, but for a low view of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Was he understanding when they died, when they got sick? No. So here's the question. Do we really think that we're exempt? Are we really so special that he would never do that to us? Do you seriously think that God would never do that? Seems like he's done it a lot for someone who would never do that. 
In fact, listen to how God deals with his people at the end of the Old Testament because they don't want to offer not just animals, not even just the right animals, but healthy animals on his offering. They offer sickly ones. Because after all, God will, God will understand. Malachi 1, verses 6 through 10. As I read, ask yourself, does this sound like God doesn't care about our low view of his worship? A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7. By offering polluted food on my altar. Sounds to me like he might care quite a bit about the purity of his worship. For not following clear rules outlined for them in the Bible, he calls their offerings polluted. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? So not only were they not allowed to offer different animals, they weren't allowed to offer sickly animals of the same type. And Yahweh continues, And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept it and show you favor? The answer is no. Nothing like choosing the worst cuts of beef, letting them rot out in the open from the sickliest livestock to serve to your honored guest in your homes. And by the way, for those of you who are attending my house after worship... It's good soup. Okay, my wife made it. It's good soup. (laughs) But that's what we're doing to Yahweh. Is Yahweh not greater? Says the Lord of hosts, verse 9, and now entreat the favor of, of, of God that he may be gracious to you with such a gift, a sick gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Well, well, what would you have us do instead, Lord? Verse 10. Oh, that there was someone among you who would shut the doors. Of what? Of the temple. So that you stop sacrificing. So that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Boy, God, tell us how you really feel about our disobedient worship. Okay, I have no pleasure in you, exclamation point, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. This doesn't seem like a stretch or a long limb, but I think think he cares. (laughs) I think he cares about how he's worshipped. And some of us need to give real consideration to whether or not we are treating God's worship and the parts of his worship with a low view of it that he says, I have no pleasure in you. Is that me? Is that you? Jesus cares more about his holiness and his worship and the elements of his worship than he does about our feelings and about our comforts in it. Otherwise, what would happen is he would allow this to spread in the church. It didn't have to be like this, Ananias. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it it not remain your own? Of course, the, the, the view of life in the church doesn't deny the morality of personal property. It was Ananias's, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Of course, yes, it was. 
He could have done any number of things with it. He didn't have to give it to the church, and that would not have been sin. But if he sold it to give to the kingdom and then held back some of it out of greed, or if he's presenting himself as, I sold my land too, like Barnabas, and then held back some for himself, then it's clearly sin. And it's contrary to the advancement of the gospel through the church. And Peter asks, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? He didn't have to plan to hold some back and lie about it. This whole thing originated from Ananias' heart and from Satan's ideas. And the thought came from a satanic origin. And in Ananias, there was a heart willingly receptive to it. So that when he presents it as an offering beyond the tithe for the glory of God, you're not lying to man, you're lying to God. That's what Peter concludes. He has sinned against the Lord and immediately is judged for it. What happens next doesn't come from Peter. Verse 5, and when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He immediately died. I guess you could argue for an uncannily, alarmingly well-timed heart attack. But the sense of this whole passage is that the Lord struck Ananias down without saying it. And what did it produce? And great fear came upon all who heard about it. This is not a fear of Peter. This is not a fear of the apostles. This is not a fear of the church. This is not a general internal fear and anxiety. This is a fear of the living and true God, the Holy One of Israel. This is the fear of the Lord. This is awe. There is added reverence, added awe, added care to honor and glorify him as that unto which we are saved and added conviction to honor the Lord's worship and its parts. So will you be more careful to worship the Lord with a pure heart? Will you be convicted to worship the Lord only in the way that he has prescribed? Will you repent of a low view of God's worship and his glory? Will you strive, motivated by Jesus' self-sacrifice, to treat you as pardoned and righteous? Will you strive, by the Holy Spirit, to sacrifice for the glory of the Lord in his kingdom? Because he is calling you, he has empowered you by the indwelling Spirit. He's forgiven you your sins, not so that you continue in your sin, but so that you look like him in holiness, in reverence. And his worship is more important than your feelings. Now, Peter orders for some young men to come and remove Ananias' body. Verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. But what happened to his wife? After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Verse 8, and Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. God is giving her another opportunity to come clean and just tell the truth as well to repent of their being against the lord and she said yes for so much mournfully she lied too i'd imagine she said it out of just fidelity to her husband who she's probably looking for since it's been about three hours where did he go verse nine but peter said to her how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the lord 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. Ladies, don't think that you won't be held accountable for your role in these things as well. Because, verse 10, immediately she fell down at the feet, at his feet, and breathed her last. That is, she died. Sapphira, then, is also judged by the Lord. So I think this rules out an explanation of well-timed heart attacks. That means, ladies, that if you're complicit and your family is withholding tithes and offerings from God and the advancement of his kingdom, if you're complicit in appearing to be for the kingdom when you're not, if you're complicit in hypocritically appearing to be for the Lord's glory when you're not, you too will be held accountable. In the exact same way that Ananias and Sapphira were? No, probably not. But held accountable? Yeah. Why did all this happen? So that the church might fear the Lord in faith. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, none of this means that you're going to be judged, that you will suffer the same judgment as Ananias and Sapphira did. But again, that doesn't mean that God won't discipline us as his sons and daughters. The Lord of glory will not allow this kind of hypocrisy and tangible contradiction to spread in his kingdom. He will not allow his glory to be undermined and go unaddressed and undisciplined. He will not be mocked. You and I are not more special than the Acts 5 church or the Corinthian church. The spread of his kingdom and, the, and, 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 and his people approaching him in holiness matters more to him than our comforts. Clearly, right? Clearly. <laughs> then Ananias and Sapphira's comfort, the Lord's holiness, mattered more. It matters more to him than your health and obviously matters more to him than even our lives. And yet, this whole idea is being impressed on us because the reality is, is that Jesus sacrificed his own life to change your heart and to change your ways. To renew you, to renovate your soul so that you would not have a motive, that you would not have motives that are so contrary to the gospel, so contrary to his will and agenda, and that you can instead be a part of his kingdom and for his glory. And you might be thinking, you know, just this whole thing sounds so harsh. It's because you probably have a low view of the holiness of God. You have too low of a view of the holiness of his worship, too high a view of man, an unbiblical view of the heinousness of sin, and too low a view of what is morally good and spiritually good for the bride of Christ. Every sin deserves help. It was God's grace that allowed Ananias and Sapphira to live as long as they did. Since that's true, it's not harsh to judge them here. I will say this, though. If you're in this position of needing to repent for this very same thing, repenting with words is not merely the call. The Lord is calling you to give him what is his due. 
So there's the example of a dishonest comfort in Ananias and Sapphira. I know this is not a, a sexy sermon this morning. Okay? The reality is, though, God's holiness is not cute. Christ cares more about his worship and about his glory than your comforts. And he is calling all of us to realize that he saved us from our sins to honor him and not sow more sin, but to walk in reverence and awe of him.